0: Tonight, for our 195th episode and final episode of season four, we return to the Nung River and into the heart of darkness with Apocalypse Now from 1979. You can catch our original episode on this, which will have all of the extra categories, from season one, I believe episode seven, if uh, I'm flashing back enough. In fact, let me just check that quick. Yes, episode seven, released originally on April 9th, 2020. Uh, yes, staring the pandemic in the face. Yeah, Apocalypse Now was the exact right film to do in that moment. Yes, it was. The horror, the horror. Directed and written by Francis Ford Coppola with John Melius, Music by Francis Ford Coppola and Carmine Coppola starring Marlon Brando as Colonel Walter Kurtz. Robert Duvall as Lieutenant Colonel William Bill Kilgore. Martin Sheen as U.S. Army Captain Benjamin Willard. Frederick Forrest as Engineman 3rd Class J. Chef Hicks. Albert Hall as Chief Petty Officer George Phillips. Sam Bottoms as Gunner's Mate 3rd Class Lance B. Johnson. Lawrence Fishburne as Gunner's Mate 3rd Class Tyrone Mr. Clean Miller. Dennis Hopper as an American photojournalist. G.D. (laughs) Spradlin as Lieutenant General R. Corman. Jerry Zismer as Jerry Moore. Harrison Ford as Colonel G. Lucas. And Scott Glenn as Captain Richard M. Colby. Which, until that was pointed out to me, I had no clue that was Scott Glenn. Oh, really? Yep. Okay. I watched it and I'm like, oh yeah, sure enough, that's Scott Glenn. So a lot of people before they kind of like blew up and got extra famous. Sure. Recognition for this movie. Apocalypse Now debuted at the Cannes Film Festival on May 19th, 1979, where it won the Palme d'Or, despite being unfinished at the time. In the face of an infamously lengthy process in filming and editing that would garner its own documentary, Hearts of Darkness, the film was wide released on August 15th, 1979, on a budget of roughly $31 million, Apocalypse Now would go on to gross nearly $86 million and be the number nine grossing film of 1979. Also, despite being a widely anticipated film at the time, Apocalypse Now drew rather mixed reviews during its release. However, the film was still nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Director for Coppola, Supporting Actor for Duval, and it went on to win Best Cinematography and Sound. It has since been deemed a classic of the New Hollywood era, with many, including Roger Ebert, believing it to be the best Vietnam film ever made. It is on the following list for the American Film Institute. AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies at number 28. AFI's 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes with I Love the Smell of Napalm in the Morning at number 12. And The Horror, The Horror as a nominated line. It was on AFI's 100 Years 100 Heroes and Villains, with Colonel Walter E. Kurtz as a nominated villain. And finally, it was on AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies 10th Anniversary Edition at number 30. In 2006, the Writers Guild of America ranked the screenplay by John Millius and Francis Ford Coppola the 55th Greatest Ever. It is number 7 on Empire's 2008 list of the 500 Greatest Movies of All Time. Empire re-ranked it at number 20 in their 2014 list of the 301 Greatest Movies of All Time, and again at number 22 on their 2018 list of the 100 Greatest Films of All Time. It was voted number 66 on the list of 100 Greatest Films by the prominent French magazine Cahir du Cinema in 2008. In 2010, The Guardian named Apocalypse Now the best action and war film of all time. In 2016, The Hollywood Reporter ranked it 11th among 69 winners of the Palme d'Or. The New York Times included it on its Best 1,000 Movies Ever list. In 2002, Sight & Sound magazine invited several critics to name the best film of the last 25 years, and Apocalypse Now was named number one. It was also listed as the second-best war film by viewers on Channel 4's 100 Greatest War Films and was the second-best war movie of all time based on the Movie Phone list after Schindler's List and the IMDb War Movie list after The Longest Day. It is ranked number one on Channel 4's 50 Films to See Before You Die. And in a 2004 poll of UK film fans, Blockbuster listed Kilgore's eulogy to Napalm as the best movie speech. The helicopter attack scene with the Ride of the Valkyries soundtrack was chosen as the most memorable film scene ever by Empire Magazine. In 2000, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. Apocalypse Now currently holds a 98% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 94 score on Metacritic, and a 4.4 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, Dad, as we start each week, what is your relationship to this movie? I saw it years ago when it was released
1: in video, and then I watched it again maybe one other time, and then I think I watched, or then I obviously watched it in 2020 in preparation for the show.
0: You would have been a freshman or sophomore in high school? 19, what time frame 1979, is 1979, August 1979.
1: I would have been going into my uh, sophomore year of high school.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's what I approximately thought, because you graduated in 82, right? Yes. I think my relationship to this, I think the first time that I watched it was one of those where it has a legendary status. Obviously, people know certain motifs or famous lines They've been repeated all over pop culture forever. The Ride of the Valkyries is obviously infamous, not just for this movie, but for many things. But it is somewhat tied to this movie. Yes. The napalm line you've been repeating forever and ever and ever. I think it's one of the most misquoted lines ever in cinema because it's not. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. It smells like victory. There's a lot in between there.
1: Correct. Correct. But the reason I quote it is because when I was in college my freshman year, and I was in Chicago, and Steve Dahl was a radio, uh, the, one of the first shock jocks. He was about the same time frame as when Howard Stern started. And he opened every show by playing a montage of sound clips from various films. And that was one of the clips. And I used to listen to him religiously because he came on at five o'clock. And I used to um, be the security for the school library at five o'clock, three days a week. And so I could sit with my radio and my earphones and listen to it while I'm checking backpacks to make sure no one's stealing books. And so I listened to Steve Dahl every or three or four or five days a week. And heard that clip every start of his show.
0: Regardless, I think I just put this on during college because it was known as an important film. I think that's just simply it. I think I watched the redux or maybe a remastered version or an added version about 10, 15 years ago, somewhere in that range. And I think I watched it again when we did this the first time. And this is probably the third time I've seen it. And I think my appreciation has grown with each passing time. I think this is a much more complex movie that you need to have somewhat of a film fan digestive system to completely get all the little nuances and little things about it. Otherwise, it just feels kind of trippy. So I can understand why this would be like paired well with like Pink Floyd. But at the same time, There's a reason for that, because, I mean, this movie is about the insanity or the incursion of anxiety and mental stress being in the bush was.
1: This is the first time I had seen the uh, version or the redo, if you use the French pronunciation. Uh, And so I'm watching this and all of a sudden there's the scene where they're in a helicopter with the playmates. And I'm like, I don't remember this. How did I miss this scene before? And then they get to the uh, front or the uh, rubber plantation. And I'm like, I don't remember this scene at all. And I was kind of confused until I started doing some research. But anyway, just as an aside, the, uh, the girl that was in, one of the girls that was playing a playmate and was actually a playmate. And I can't remember her first name, but it was Woods. It's actually Natalie Woods's younger sister. You know, I just thought that was kind of uh, interesting. But the movie itself is about, I think it's supposed to be a statement as to how absolutely pointless war is and how events, circumstances, and situations can drive people to do and behave in certain ways that are not natural to them. It, it kind of shows what s- the stress of war can cause. With Kurtz, it's the idea of his insanity. And with Willard, it's his apathy towards everything. I mean, ultimately, the opposite of love is not Hate, because hate is a reaction or anything. The opposite of love is apathy, where you just don't care. He just reached a point where he checked out. In fact, the line towards the end of the movie is, is I'm going to be promoted to a major from this, but they don't even realize that I've already left
0: the army. To me, what the river represents is a throughway, somewhat like the River Styx, in losing your humanity slowly over time, obviously with Kurtz being as the final destination, but you don't know that that's the exact far end of the river until you get there. And the further up he goes, I mean, we start with the ride of the Valkyries and them dropping off the boat and them doing little shenanigans, but the further up they go, the more hostile, the more, grotesque, the more they devalue human life, it becomes.
1: I agree. I mean, the the point where Willard shoots the one survivor from the, the boat attack. I mean, it's just kind of like, yeah, she's just in the way of completing the mission. So,
0: she's done. Or the fact that they shot it up in the first place because they were just scared, you know, of an other... Possibility when it's revealed that she was trying to protect a puppy. Obviously, one of the symbols of pureness and goodness. Yeah. So, why is the Vietnam War specifically so fascinating that we've kind of have this subgenre of film from, I would say, about the mid 70s all the way up through probably the mid 90s? It's because
1: the Vietnam War was the first war where soldiers coming back actually had the ability to express their feelings instead of bearing it. We had the rise of psychology and of counseling and therapy and understanding of post-traumatic stress disorder and anxiety and all of that that did not exist before. So the soldiers actually were able to address some of this stuff and as a result it became a point of i guess it's cathartic the whole concept of world war one two and and uh korea was that soldiers buried it they didn't talk about it you know they suppressed it and had difficulty in life or it came out in other ways Vietnam became kind of a watershed because it not only had such impact on those who participated, but it had such an impact on those who actively campaigned against it. It kind of was a defining moment in this country as to the direction that we were going to go. And so every Vietnam war film that comes out is Again, an aspect of trying to search each individual soul as to what they think, believe, and feel about this time frame, America's involvement in the world, the commitment that we make, and whether war and violence in order to achieve an end is
0: worthy. I definitely think film is a reflection on the audience's appetite for certain things. And obviously there wouldn't be this many Vietnam films made within a certain period of time if the public wasn't trying to reconcile its own feelings on the event. I agree with you that it's a seminal event in the history of America, not necessarily as much of a world event, because I think America probably deals with it a little bit more than just about anywhere else, with the obvious exception being Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam itself where they were going through it quite literally, but the feelings even on a home front basis were so mixed between different generations and such that it defined all of our politics for probably 20 to 30 years. I think it still defines it. I'm not so much sure that the Vietnam war is as seminal of an event for certain generations as I would say my generation and maybe a little bit ahead of me is probably more defined by 9-11 and the aftermath of what came with that. I understand what you're saying, but for my generation,
1: Vietnam defined the baby boom, which is the group that is in kind of the executive positions in this country right now. And so it kind of impacts that how they make decisions on business, how they look at politics, how they decide they're going to spend their money as far as political candidates. Ronald Reagan was the result of the Vietnam War, where it it became so much of a feeling of self-loathing or self-searching or whatever. Ronald Reagan was more of the idea of putting the genie back in the bottle and saying that we're a good country despite all of this, and we need to move forward and be a beacon towards the world as far as what freedom is and and quit the wallowing and self-pity.
0: Sure, the beacon on a hill speech or uh, city on a hill and morning in America.
1: Correct. It's one one of the reasons why. I personally, and I mean, I'm not trying to get too political, but I I believe it's a good thing for individuals to search or to be self-reflective of their country, their country's motives and what their country's actions are. And that was part of the problem I had with Reagan was it's not, there was no self-reflection. It's We're America. We're good. That's the rule. We don't care. And so I just thought it was jingoistic and just never really followed Reagan's policies or ideas throughout the 1980s, which is my formative years.
0: I certainly don't want to paint the picture that we want to be a part of the self-wallowing, the America's made nothing but mistakes, and its influence as an imperial power has been in some ways negative. I'm not on that side either. Where I would like to come down is, is that there is a, a part of you that at least admits when you're wrong and tries to make up for a lot of your mistakes or tries to move forward by not making the same mistakes, but doesn't necessarily let that paralyze you in where you're moving forward to. Obviously, everybody makes mistakes, but we don't want to focus so much on just where we've been that we don't know where we're going. And I think that's the pivot point between two parties is somewhere finding the middle of those two sides. The other part of this that I don't know if either party is currently offering is what are we doing going forward? Like, what is our progression as a country? Where do we want to be as a society moving forward? Nobody's really presenting a vision of what's next what can be achieved, et cetera, et cetera. I truly
1: believe, and it won't happen in the 2024 election, but the 2028 presidential election will be about whichever person is able to articulate
0: a vision for the next decade. I'd like to see that. Unfortunately, I don't know if that will come to fruition based on the politics of today, but it's hard to envision where we'll be at four years from now. I mean, if you would have told me in 2012 what we would get in 2016, I would have, <laughs> I would have like laughed at you hard. No, you wouldn't have, because you yourself said,
1: I can envision a point in time where a reality star becomes a focal point of a presidential campaign. I remember you saying that.
0: I don't remember saying that, but I think it was oh, more in I the do. context of that our presidential elections will be chosen like American Idol.
1: Yes, and that's ultimately what happened. It tapped into a certain feeling or belief or sub-focus of America that was not a predominant view, but the rest of the people who were not far removed from that uh, philosophy tagged on and
0: said, oh, what the hell, let's give it a ride. Well, I think it was also a nature of let's burn the house down. It can't be much worse than we're in now.
1: Well,
0: (laughs) the the only difference in this cycle that's going to be is now he's coming back to finish the job. It's like the horror villain that just won't go away. He'll never die. (laughs) Yeah. So let's dig in a little bit more into Apocalypse Now. Do you have our plot summary ready for us? I do. Apocalypse Now is a classic
1: Vietnam War film loosely based on Joseph Conrad's novella, Heart of Darkness. Captain Benjamin Willard, Martin Sheen, is tasked with a mission to assassinate Colonel Walter E. Kurtz, Marlon Brando, who has gone rogue and established his own kingdom deep in the Cambodian jungle. As Willard travels up the Nung River to reach Kurtz's compound, He encounters the surreal and nightmarish aspect of war, including the madness and brutality that can consume both soldiers and their leaders. The film explores themes of the morality of war, the impact of power and insanity, and the blurred lines between civilization and savagery. Apocalypse Now is known for its stunning cinematography, powerful performances, and its depiction of the psychological and moral challenges faced by those involved in the Vietnam War.
0: Thank you. Did you know? The canteen scene with Lieutenant Colonel Kilgore and the wounded Viet Cong is based on an actual wounded VC fighter who fought while keeping his entrails strapped to his belly in an enameled cooking pot. The incident was documented by the photojournalist Philip Jones Griffiths, The real life U.S. soldier was quoted as saying any soldier who can fight for three days with his insides out can drink from my canteen anytime. Did you know? Shooting, originally scheduled for six weeks, took 16 months. (laughs) Yeah. Did you know? The United States military refused to lend Francis Ford Coppola any military equipment due to the order to kill Colonel Kurtz. Coppola instead had to borrow local military equipment. Did you know? It took Francis Ford Coppola nearly three years to edit the footage. While working on his final edit, it became apparent to him that Martin Sheen would be needed to tape several additional narrative voiceovers. Coppola soon discovered that Sheen was busy and unable to perform these voiceovers. He then called in Sheen's brother, Joe Estevez, whose voice sounded nearly identical, to perform the new narrative tracks. Estevez was also used as a stand-in when Sheen suffered a heart attack during the shoot in 1976. However, Estevez was not credited for his work as a stand-in, nor for his voiceover work. Did you know? Lawrence Fishburne was 14 when production began in 1976. He lied about his age, a common practice for men under 18 during American wars. And with that, we will take our first break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, starting in two weeks, season five will kick off with our top 10 best individual years in movies. If you want to make your own list before then and send them to us on social media for our consideration, please send them to at GMote Podcast on X, Instagram, TikTok, or Letterboxd, and then tune in on January 10th as we kick off our fifth season. All right, let's go to the Stanley rubric then. As we have started doing with all of these revisit episodes, I'm going to give you the original legacy score we had on April 9th, 2020, and then we're going to negotiate after we do our first initial, let's say, offerings on each of our scores. So the original legacy score on Apocalypse Now was a nine. Did you think that we got it right or wrong? I actually, we weren't dividing it then. Correct. Correct. I'm not entirely sure when we started doing that. Yeah, I think for the
1: public, 4.5 was correct. I think that Legacy for the Industry, because this has become such an iconic film and the fact that there was a documentary and there's been multiple recuts and et cetera and Coppola's kind of entered into this almost mythical status in film. I went with a five for the industry. So I went up a half a point.
0: So I was divided on whether to go a four or a 4.5 for the public. I agree with you that this is a full five for the industry. This is revered by everybody in the industry. There isn't almost anybody who's in film that doesn't at least know something about this film or hold it in high reverence. The critics all still love it. It's obviously placed highly in any great movies of all time list. And it's seen as, I would say, the third of Coppola's great 1970s trilogy after the first two parts of The Godfather. So I'm willing to go to the 9.5 as well. I don't need to really beat around it. I, th- I think that's fair.
1: I think there's so many lines that are still quoted from the film, even today. And people are familiar with certain aspects of it and some of the lore involved it. that it still does hold that.
0: With the public, I guess, the one thing that I will or that I think we should address is the half point down. It's not universally well known. I think there is a section as we've graduated further and further away from the Vietnam War, and this movie gets older and older. So, the kids that are below me, you know, the 25 and under crowd, maybe even the 30 and under crowd that has no recognition of this movie. But anybody that's probably older than me has, if not seen the movie, at least knows of the movie. And so that's where I get a slight half point down is, is I don't know how many of the younger generation, as movies become less and less important, know of the film and know the certain iconography associated with it.
1: It's kind of a shame and I hope that at some point in time we have some impact on people who are not unfamiliar with certain films that they go back and watch some. I think if you showed this film, I don't think it loses anything.
0: No, <laughs> I I, did, could... I agree with you there.
1: Okay, I mean, I think you could say, you know, this could be symbol or symbolic of Afghanistan or Iraq. You know so for a younger generation who's going to have or feel the impact of this, I don't think it's that far off. I would love to see more people watch it because I think it would have some level of a reboom or a uh, rebound as far as familiarity within the the younger crowd.
0: I think you're right in that it still feels very modern and can be applied still to modern warfare and our feelings on warfare, especially I would consider since this is loosely adapted from a book that had to do about the first Boer war that you could universally say this story could be applied to anything, just make True. it traveling up the Tigris of the Euphrates in Iraq. So that changes from a nine to a 9.5 for us. All right. Impact and significance. This is where we had a 9.5 originally, and I'm not sure that I'm willing to go quite that high again. Even though the movie is celebrated in its time, technically it is the first one to have supposed real footage of combat and conflict in Vietnam as a central plot line. I spent a lot of time this week listening through the eight-part series on The Ringer, about Vietnam war films. And the only other one that had like most of the scenes be from the battlefield aspect was the green berets by John Wayne, which was just this (laughs) totally macho, everything you'd expect John Wayne in a war film to be about Vietnam has no accuracy whatsoever and was basically propagandistic about our time in Vietnam. Whereas this was seen as like, Iconoclastic, anti-war, etc. cetera. But it still got beaten to theaters by two f- seminal films of the late seventies in the deer hunter and coming home. But those had more, those were basically the they reverse were more about pivot-
1: People coming back than about being on the battlefield.
0: Yes. They were, had to do more with how we felt in America at the time, as opposed to, anything that was going on in the combat zone. So I would say this is a little bit ahead of its time, but that's also why given how dense, how intense, how layered the film is, not everybody was ready for this type of war film, and it was kind of at the precipice of what it was supposed to be and before we got the true Vietnam War boom of the like mid to late 80s. So while audiences celebrated it, the fact that it had mixed reviews within the industry, the fact that it had so many stories and mythology built up around it, I had to drop down the industry score because I think this is one that has played better over time for the industry than it did for the audience. I don't think the audience has changed all that much given that there was a fervor, but I went for a 3.5 for the industry and a 4.5 for the public.
1: Right. There was a, a, a definite dichotomy among the public. They were at this point in time, ready to start understanding the difficulty of people who experienced or lived through this coming back and adjusting to regular society they were not ready necessarily to understand how these people got to the point where they had to be understood coming back. Sure. It was completely uncomfortable and difficult for them to watch and understand what war was and what these men had to go through and what they did go through to get to this point and understand how they got to the point of being these wounded, warped, psychologically damaged individuals. So I, I went with a four for the public, and I stayed right at the 4.5 for the industry because I think the industry understood it as great film and the power of it and what was going on with how it was shot and the story involved. I don't think they quite understood the message as much, which is why I went down a half point from there. We're coming at it from two different directions.
0: Yeah, I don't see this as one that the industry was ready to wrap its arms around because it was a different film. Again, it was on the precipice of dealing with the outcome of the war. I mean, the fall of Saigon, that's 75, 74, 75.
1: Uh, 75 was when, uh, ultimately we pulled out in 73 and by 75, uh, they just overran South Vietnam and, uh, Gerald Ford was president and and nobody in the United States said a word. It's kind of like,
0: well, okay. So even so it was still within recent memory for a lot of people to be dealing with it. And while there was an audience, discussion to be the number nine film of the year for how much this was built up in popular culture for how much I think a lot of people saw the film immediately in the aftermath of it that led to other successes down the road. You know, like does Rambo happen if it's not for this film? Well, I think it had enough commercial (laughs) success. That's why I pushed it up a little bit higher, but you're at an 8.5 and I'm at an eight. Okay. And I'm not sure where because we're coming at it. I had a higher audience score and a lower industry score. You had a higher industry score and a lower audience score where the negotiation point should be.
1: Rambo is a reflection of the Reagan philosophy of we're always right. The American glory aspect again as a close or as opposed to our own self recrimination about did we do right, were we, were we justified, did we abuse the self-loathing? So I don't see that as far as where the industry was going. I think the industry bought into it hook, line, and sinker very quickly because it presented a much more happy ending. I mean, ultimately, Hollywood still loves happy endings because... You know, who wants to leave a film and feel worse than when they came in? It's very, it's not common. You're not going to have people flocking to films where they actually have to think and feel worse about themselves and situations around them than when they walked in. It should be the opposite direction. I mean, I could go with, I guess I'll go to the eight. Cause I was going to go to the 8.5, but all right. Well, I lived through this period. And so I, I get a little bit better feeling of this than you are looking back at it. It was a very strange time. Extremely strange. I remember being in high school and they reinstituted having to register for the draft and how big a deal it was for me to go down
0: to the post office
1: and register
0: for the draft. All right. So this is the worldwide box office for 1979, only accounting for the year 1979. So if you had stuff that leaked over into 1980 or it was a little bit before it, that doesn't account for this, but the five immediately ahead of apocalypse now at number nine was the Amityville horror 1941, the Spielberg film. <sighs> Mad Max, Kramer vs. Kramer, Star Trek The Motion Picture, and Alien. Okay. Now, what was after it? The Muppet movie, The Jerk, <laughs> Dawn of the Dead, a movie called Ten, and ten? Love at First Bite.
1: Well, Ten was great. Deadly Moore and Bo Derek?
0: I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of films down the list that I've heard of, like Starting Over, All That Jazz, The Black Stallion, The China Syndrome, and Justice for All that are like way down there that are classic movies, going in style, being there. But they are like very low finishers on the overall list. You've never seen 10? I've never heard of 10. Oh, it's... It's a great film. It was Blake Edwards directed and written. Okay, so immediately you're already telling me I won't like it, but thank you. Uh, All right, whatever. It won't be for me. That's fine. Not everything has to be. All right, let's take it to our last category before we move on. Just a quick recap on that one. We moved from a 9.5 on the original impact and significance score to an 8.5. Actually, no, you said we moved it down to an 8. So I guess we moved it to an 8. All right. Original novelty score on this one was an 8.5. I think we got it wrong. As many Vietnam films as there were eventually, there's still no film like this. It feels like the unicorn Vietnam film. It's about something that didn't actually happen. It's not recommemorating anything. It's doing some... type of fictionalized version of a novelized script and it's the only one in a subgenre of Vietnam films that really deals with this kind of like aesthetic mm-hmm. madness portion of things so I went with a 9.5 Ooh, I went with a 9 <sighs> boy the war film had happened but there weren't These types of war films, the kind of anti war, the post Vietnam, the self, you know, self doubt, self loathing that you've described type of films. So, if we're even talking about war films in general, this was a new era of films. And to a degree, even though Coming Home and the Deer Hunter had kind of initiated it, this kicked down the door. And I think every war film that's been made after it is in the shadow of apocalypse now. The only reason I give it a half point down is it's still a war film.
1: Uh, and looking back and I went through a list of war films. I'll have to agree with you that this was this broke very very new ground. I I'll, I'll I was at
0: a 9 I guess I'll come up to your 9.5 boy, I must be on my game tonight. I think that's the third time you've already agreed with me. I no. Oh, no, I actually, it's it's just the last two, because the first one I came up to, so never mind. But all right, so that's a good spot for our second break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley Rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our master greatest movies of all time list that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, There's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to ronnyduncanstudios.com backslash podcast and find us the top entry on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast show page. That has the grades we've done so far for all 181 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, we left off at classicness. Originally, the classicness score on this one was a 9. And again, I think we were wrong. Okay. But where do you come down?
1: I thought we were right. Okay. So why do you think we were wrong?
0: (sighs) The movie is complicated, both for what this movie accomplishes and says, and also the lack of perspective it holds and things outside of it that are not under its control. The point of view it takes of... Americans at the time is warranted. It was going to be very difficult for something like this to get made. Coppola like nearly drove himself insane trying to get this even to the point where he could shoot it. And then the shooting and the production and the editing drove him quite literally mad. It's hard to hold that against him because the public appetite for something like this was not quite ready. He was at the forefront of trying to get something like this made. But at the same time, it lacks the perspective of the opposing side. While its themes are somewhat anti-war, it still is somewhat dehumanizing towards a lot of the people in the film. It is almost darkly comedic when it deals with the Vietnam people. I described in the Did You Know section the point where Duval's character Kilgore comes over and lets the Viet Cong drink from his canteen, but the minute he hears about a famous surfer, which is like two seconds later, he takes the canteen away and he just walks away like, okay, I was going to make this big production out of letting the guy drink from my canteen, and now I'm just going to ignore him because there's a surfer in my ranks. <laughs> uh. So parts of that take a little bit off for me. I'm not sure how to feel about the boat scene we described where they shoot up all the Vietnamese like peasant farmers and then he just finally offs the final one, which you could view as somewhat of a mercy killing, but also a true like waste of life. The depictions of violence and dehumanization and the madness that go into Vietnam can be seen as aging well because of its stance on war and also as a negative. And that's why I ended up at a seven because I was banding about, is this a movie that ages well or ages poorly? And so I kind of reverted back to my neutral stance where seven is usually the starting point because I couldn't decide. (laughs) To
1: me, it's classicness is the fact that it accurately portrays the inhumanity of war it does more to establish and show that there's no real logical sense associated with many aspects of war you just never get to a point where it's logical or that it's based on thought it's raw emotions and ha- and most of the time the raw emotions are stress related so that it's inaccurate as to the assessment of the situation. So people die and get shot, not necessarily because they pose a threat, but because the thought that they may pose a threat was enough to cause action. So I can't go as low as a seven by any stretch because I just can't see I mean, I think this film establishes classicness that permeates through society today as to just the stupidity of war and why there's pacifism within a large portion of this society today. Let's put it this way. I mean, when you look at all of the war films, Sands of Iwo Jima, The Longest Day. Uh, the Green Berets, which you mentioned, Battleground. You know, all of these war films that were, there were combat scenes. They were all the same, which was to glorify. People just let their raw emotions and their own fears overcome rationality and act and behave in ways that are repulsive.
0: I guess where I'm going to have trouble is, a lot was defined for a certain generation of people by these genre of films. And this one being probably the most famous during the era with the maybe lone exception of platoon. I don't know whether it was a positive force by being anti-war or not, because I do know that there are certain people that, probably looked at like the ride of the Valkyries in a positive light. It was absurdity. That was the point. I understand. Of it. I understand that's the point of it, but it's not necessarily going to be taken the that way by everybody. But that's still beside the point. I guess to try and round off this discussion, how low are you willing to go? I know I'm gonna have to come up.
1: I guess I I would reluctantly be willing to split our differences.
0: I wasn't even sure you were going to come down to an eight, to be honest. 8.25? Okay, I can do that. All right. All right, rewatchability then. Oh, I suppose I should recap those. On Novelty, which we did before the break, we had an 8.5 and that moved to a 9.5. On Classicness, we've moved from a 9 to an 8.25 rewatchability here, we had an original score of five. I have since moved it up to a 7.5. The likelihood that I'm going to put this on again is a little bit higher, probably not for the course of the show, but just given its significance in film overall and the fact that I have gotten more out of it each time that I've watched it, I think I understand it a little bit better. And so my likelihood of leaving it on is also high at a four. So I have a 7.5.
1: I actually have a 7.5 also, and I would strongly suggest for those people who have not seen the film or are going to watch it again and haven't watched it in a number of years, put the closed caption in (laughs) because there is so many of the lines that are mumbled that you cannot pick up, but by the closed caption, you get to understand a lot more of what's going on, and the film went up precipitously, in my view, once I could hear some of the lines that I could not pick up when I first watched the film and when I
0: subsequently watched the film. So you're saying he needed a better sound mixer, like we constantly talk about Christopher Nolan? Definitely, because
1: there are so many of these lines that are just kind of like mumbled that I just cannot... I cannot fathom why you would do that. You spend so much time on a script and so much time with camera shots and angles. And ultimately, the words that are said together with the body language ultimately convey the scene.
0: You basically eliminate half of what you're supposed to be viewing. So that changes from a 5 to a 7.5. On the original audience score, we had a 9.4 based on only the Rotten Tomatoes score. The Rotten Tomatoes score for audience score has not changed since that point, but we have an 89% for Google users, so it drops it to a 9.25. So to repeat the categories, we had a 9 for legacy originally. We moved to a 9.5. We originally had a 9.5 for impact and significance moved to an 8. We originally had a novelty score of 8.5 moved to a 9.5. We had an original Classicness score of 9, moved to an 8.25. We had a Rewatchability score of 5, and moved to a 7.5. And an Audience score of 9.4, moved to 9.25. Our original Total score was a 50.4. And our new Current score... <laughs> is a 52. Do you want to make a guess as to how many spots on the list it moved up? 11. Mm, that's not too bad. Just about double it 22 22? slots. Yeah, 22 wow. slots. It was tied with Inglorious Bastards after we did the revisit earlier this year. Those are in between Fargo and Shrek. And it moves up to tied with The Silence of the Lambs in between The Wizard of Oz and Die Hard. Okay. So it's inside the top 25 now. All right. As always, if you have any comments on our scoring or have any anything you'd like to pick on us about, because I would guess that you're not going to just message us saying that we had the most perfect scoring of all time. It's more likely that you're going to pick on us for something that you think we did wrong, which is just fine by me. You can hit us up on any of our socials, at Podcast on X, Instagram, TikTok, or Letterboxd. You can find our Facebook page or email us at GreatestAllTimeMoviePodcast at gmail.com. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? We uh, do. James McCaffrey,
1: 65 American actor. Max Payne, Rescue Me, Viper, and Suits.
0: Yeah, he's a figure that I have known to pop up occasionally in Just a whole bunch of different things. Obviously, he was a character on Rescue Me. I think he was the dead brother who died in 9-11 that kept being seen as a ghost by Dennis Leary's character. But most people who got into the suits craze over the summer will remember him playing Harvey's dad. But he's just been a longtime character actor who's popped up in a lot of different stuff and uh, obviously passed away this week.
1: Selma Archard, 98. American actress was in Die Hard, Lethal Weapon, and Lethal Weapon 3.
0: And so we remembered these here fondly for their contributions with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. All right. We made it to the end of season four. Yes, we have. Reflections. Oh. We are not at our fourth anniversary, so we have a couple of months yet to go on that. I think our original yes. first episode was like February 25th or 26th, 2020. But even so, we're going to be inching up on our 200th episode here pretty quickly, which we've already told everybody that uh, it's going to be gone with the wind. I suppose I can tease what else is coming in between then. We've got four episodes yet upcoming. So for anybody that... uh is looking. Obviously we said at the break that we're going to be doing our top 10 best individual years in movies to start off the season. That won't be an official episode, but it'll still be fun to put that together. We have blood simple on January 17th. Great film. We have a fistful of dollars on January 24th with Kieran coming back on the show for his sixth appearance. We have Dr. Strangelove or how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. So another Kubrick film. I think this will be our third. That sounds right. Yes. And that will be on January 31st. We have The Third Man, which is going to be a favorite of mine because I don't know what it is, but I love that stupid score to that film. (laughs) (laughs) But Carol Reed's Third Man with uh, Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles. That's coming up on February 7th. And then finally, Gone with the Wind we're bringing back our most famous guest. Ah, yes. Coming in off the top rope once again to join us for that one. So,
1: <laughs> well, you make it sound like we're going to be doing WWE.
0: Yes, that was the whole point. Ah. And then to round out February, we have Office Space with a new guest coming on who is uh, a personal connection to us. It's my and this is Spinal Tap before we get to our Oscars preview. which My understanding is is you have not seen it. That is correct. You tried to show it to me once, and the DVD was corrupted from family video or wherever. Okay. It is
1: hilarious. It is a film that was all ad-libbed. There was really no script. It's the quintessential Rob Reiner's film where he just got some of his friends together And they just spitballed it and came up with a gem.
0: But a few other reflections on the year. We have a new number one overall. The Dark Knight is currently holding our number one spot on the list. We began the year with Casablanca there. And for about a week, Casablanca dropped down to uh, number five or number four or whatever it was. Which angered you, but then Jaws was re-replaced by The Dark Knight, like, three weeks later or something. (laughs) Actually, I think I have that backward. But anyway, Casablanca, after its second revisit, which is the first time we've ever re-revisited anything, is now sitting at five. The current top ten of the list reads High Noon, The Godfather, All the President's Men, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Saving Private Ryan, Casablanca, North by Northwest, 12 Angry Men, Jaws, and The Dark Knight.
1: To be honest, if I had those 10 films and I could watch them and I'm stranded on a desert island,
0: I could survive. Yeah, I just think that The Godfather would probably be the least of those for you.
1: Yeah, I just don't understand exactly why everybody's so infatuated with it. It's a good film. It's well done. I just don't. Make the connection. I guess
0: other people do. I certainly do. I love The Godfather. I don't know. But as far as the bottom of the list, we have also a new entrant at the very bottom of the list. We had something that was lower than the greatest show on Earth with The Room. (laughs) Yes. We've done a handful of revisit episodes at this point. So in addition to doing the re -re revisit of Casablanca, we also did... Inglorious Bastards, Goodfellas, A Few Good Men, Taxi Driver, Rocky, and Zodiac this year, and now Apocalypse Now. So we've done more revisits than ever before this year. We have a new established oldest movie that we've ever done in Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans from 1927. Which was good. I enjoyed that. And uh, we have at least three new people, four new people, to our five timers list this year. So Rob Conlon made it with John Wick. Allison made it with the re-re-visit of Casablanca, which angered you. Uh, (laughs) Nah, well. And uh, Adam got on with his revisit of Zodiac. And Kieran just made it with Shane. Yes. So we're now up to five people on the Five Timers Club. We have one more who's just one short. And uh, we'll see if we can schedule him for his fifth coming up this next year and we have a lot more in store but uh four years in the can that's probably three and a half longer than i thought
1: yeah it's been fun it has become a uh significant portion of my
0: life i know i define my week entirely by it (laughs) we record (laughs) on wednesday I take Thursday and Friday off, then I start really digging in. Well, th- it, certain weeks I will start putting the edit together or at least like the bones of it together on like a Thursday. So that way on Saturday I can start sitting down and start really editing and digging in. And if I'm not done by like the end of Sunday or whatever it is, I have to figure out, you know, how much time can I budget towards it on Monday and Tuesday to make sure it's done by midnight on Tuesday when everything is supposed to release. But at the same time, by Monday, I got to turn my attention to, all right, what's the next thing we're doing? What are the notes I got to put together? And so it's just come habitual. Every single week is the same. (laughs) Put together is defined by doing this show.
1: Well, and to be perfectly honest, the fact that we have people who are listening and our fans and anybody out there who has some opinion that they would like to express, who would like to potentially be a guest on the show, let us know. We've got places for additional guests and we can gladly function within that sphere. But the fact is, is it kind of gives you a feeling of being within the industry, which is kind of cool.
0: So I already have the season five schedule already put together. And I did that like over a year in advance because I'm a crazy person. (laughs) <laughs> but i want to say i have like 110 different options for 2025 already that i put together this afternoon which will go through and narrow down which ones we want to build around going into next year or excuse me into the following year but otherwise a definitely enjoyable season some great highlights Thank you all for anyone who's been on this journey with us. We enjoyed having you. Uh, We plan to be here for (laughs) as long as we both can physically still put this type of thing together. We have a lot of movies to go through yet. I I think I have famously said I had a list of 434 entrants when we started the show, and we've probably done 50 that are not from that original list. So given that we're at 180 one in the amount of movies we've covered, even though we're at episode like 195, 196, you know, I, I think, uh, we have quite a bit, uh, still to go. True. Very true. And each year that goes by,
1: we have more films that have been released that have aged
0: into our review process. We have four alone from 2019 on next year's list. So what films do we have from
1: 2019 that will make it in? Well, you can guess a couple of them. Okay. I have a hard time remembering what came out in
0: 2019. (laughs) It all blurs. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Parasite, Joker, and Knives Out. Oh, yes. All four very good films. Mm, Three, and then Joker. (laughs) Uh, yes the the as an amateur batman historian that movie offends me okay fine whatever but anyway i think that's a good spot to leave it though for the year as i mentioned before we'll be back in about two weeks we take off the week of basically the holiday week between christmas and new year's to not have to do anything so i don't have to worry about editing while we're trying to enjoy the holiday but we'll be back in better than ever uh, in about two weeks thank you everyone for being with us we'll be doing our holiday um uh, movie themed
1: dinners over the holidays we will give you a rundown of what we did afterwards if anybody wants information beforehand email
0: us and we'll be glad to respond. I think we're going to put up our full menu list on uh, our socials. Sounds good. But otherwise, that'll do it for us this season. Thank you for listening. Starting in two weeks, season five will kick off with our top ten best individual years in movies. If you want to make your own list before then and send them to us on social media for our consideration, please send them to at Podcast on X, Instagram, TikTok, and Letterboxd. Then tune in on January 10th as we kick off our fifth season. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our phone. You can also email the show at the new or at greatestalltimemoviepodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Find our new Facebook page on a greatest movie of all time podcast, or find us on YouTube, Instagram, X, Letterboxd, or TikTok at the handle at Gmode Podcast.